0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five
1: dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do things glow in Why the dark? Animals not understand. You? Why, do Why do my receipts fade after a year?
1: Don't know the answer. <laughs> Ask the Naked Scientists.
0: Hello, and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, and Chris Smith.
1: Let me tell you a bit about a story which has come out this week, which is very mm. exciting. And this is involving carbon nanotubes. This is a researcher called Ray Bauman, and he's at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, I spoke with him last night. He's published his paper in this week's edition of the Journal of Science. And he's been playing around with carbon nanotubes, trying to make them into artificial muscles, as in the things that make you strong. Mm. And this is an amazing story because he's managed to make these tiny sheets of nanotubes. These are, these are little sort of straws of carbon atoms, which are thousands of times thinner than human hair. And by producing a forest of these things and then using sticky tape to peel off individual layers of them, he can make sheets of these nanotubes, which are about the same density as air, so they're incredibly light, but they're as strong as steel. And if he applies an electric current to them, he can make them contract, and where a normal muscle will get about 20% shorter when it contracts, his nano muscles get 220% shorter. So Ouch. they get very, 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 very short just by applying electricity, and they're very, very tough. But at the same time, they're also able to do that under incredible conditions. They work from minus 200 degrees Celsius right up to almost 2000 degrees celsius and so the researchers are saying this application could be useful for all kinds of things whether it's spacecraft going off into very harsh environments and distant parts of the solar system or even here on earth using these tiny micro muscles to uh, manipulate tiny devices at the nano scale so that you could make much better leds or solar cells because you can use them to get just the right optical properties you want from a surface so it's very exciting and if you want to read up a bit about it, it's in the journal science this week
0: Now, our first question for Dr Chris tonight is from Andrew in Cambridge. Um, Dr Chris, he says, how does his computer optical mouse actually work?
1: Well, they're very effective, these mice, aren't they? Because, I mean, I've got one. Um, They mean that you don't have that ball rolling around underneath because when mice were first invented... They were designed to be a device that you can control a computer with and they would translate hand movements in three dimensions into movements of a cursor on the screen. And by three dimensions I mean you can also have a button you can click and you can also have a scroll wheel to zoom in and out. And the problem with those balls rolling around underneath, because the the idea here is that the ball uh, moves and and reflects what you do on the surface and and the ball makes some little rollers inside the mouse turn round and those rollers... Uh, are connected to a series of shutters so if you were to take a mouse apart what you would see is a a circle which has got lots of holes cut in it and as the ball makes the uh, roller move the roller makes this disc turn and a light shining through it then sees lots of light and dark patches and this is how it knows how far the mouse has gone backwards and forwards The problem is that the ball gets covered in rubbish off of the tabletop And eventually the whole thing gets all mucky And it doesn't work very well So researchers and, and, and technologists thought This would be much better if we could just use light So what you do is to use an ultra-bright vi- ultra LED light emitting diode Which is positioned in the bottom of the mouse And this shines a beam of light with very rapid pulses Onto the surface of the table And it then tracks, as the mouse moves, the reflection back into the mouse body. So it's basically watching how the light is interacting with the surface. And it uses that as a proxy for how it used to shine light through those circular disks with holes cut in them. So in other words, it's able to work out what the surface is doing relative to the light hitting it. And that's how it tracks the movement in uh, many, many different directions. And because it's able to do it uh, using just light it's much more accurate and you can get much better resolution than you could with a ball rolling round and it doesn't get gummy so they shouldn't break down so easily either.
0: A useful item. Can I ask the following please Sue and Dr Chris? Is it safe for me to microwave already cooked chicken on the basis that the microwaves will kill any harmful bacteria? This isn't for human consumption by the way but rather to feed our dog Paul in Ipswich.
1: I'm not sure the dog really cares whether the chicken's warm or not, to be honest. Most dogs (laughs) will eat anything, in my experience. I I know your dog does, Sue. Yes. Uh, My dogs have have often eaten chickens raw. Um, They're a bit more robust in terms of their constitution than humans are. You have to be very careful with uh, reheating things uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, When you put food in the fridge and it cools down, what can happen is that it can get colonised with bacteria. Now, that's not too much of a problem, as long as those bacteria don't grow. And why we keep food in the fridge is that at low temperatures, most bacteria, not all, but most, are suppressed. There are some bacteria like listeria, monocytogenes, listeria, which causes listeriosis, which is found in things like cheese, and that's why pregnant women shouldn't eat it. They can undergo something called cold enrichment. They will grow in the fridge. But on the whole, most bacteria, because their metabolism is coupled to temperature, and the lower the temperature, the lower the metabolic rate of the bacteria and therefore the less they grow, if you put food in the fridge, it doesn't get bacterial enrichment. When you then put the food in the microwave, you have to make sure that uh, you heat it up properly and thoroughly, because what can happen with successive reheatings like this is that if the food isn't heated thoroughly and to a point where the bacteria are completely killed, you can get warm spots in the food which are able to support and sustain the growth of bacteria, but not kill them. So you could eat some of the food and you'd be fine, but then you might say, well, I'll leave that for a while and come back to it and heat it up again later. But by then, the bacteria have already grown because it's nice warm environment now and the numbers have got to a critical threshold where they potentially could infect you. So that's one risk. Another risk is that some bacteria don't make you ill by the sheer physical presence of the bacteria. It's the chemicals that they add to your food that make you ill and so some bacteria produce toxins Staphylococcus aureus is a very good example of this they produce things called exotoxins and when the bacteria grow in the food which they do at ideal warm temperatures they secrete these toxins which are designed to help to disable anything that the bacteria tries to infect and break it down and when, when you eat the food of course those toxins go into your body and the key thing about these toxins is that some of them are heat stable so even if you heat the food up really 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 hot the toxin doesn't break down. So even though you can kill all the bacteria, you can still get the toxin in your body and it will make you very violently ill for about five, six hours and then the symptoms disappear. And so you have to be really careful with reheating food because you could end up with contaminated food being heated to a point where it doesn't kill all all the bugs. They then secrete toxins, you come back to the food later and then you take the toxins into your body and you get sick. And the thing about microwaves, and this is why you have to have a turntable in them, is that the microwave heats using the energy in the microwave, the radio wave. And the radio wave bounces back and forth across the cavity inside the microwave, and the wavelength is about 12 centimetres of the microwave. And this means that there are hot spots where you get the peaks and troughs of the waves, and there are cold spots. That's why you need a turntable, because if you just heat the food with no turntable, food which is where there's a peak or a trough will get very, very hot. But in the intermediate areas, it might not be satisfactorily heated. It still means, though, there can be hot spots and cold spots in your food. So that's why it's important to stir it up. So you have to be really careful when reheating food. It's better to just heat it up properly and eat it. And then if you are going to reheat it, reheat it thoroughly and don't do it repeated numbers of times because you could get sick.
0: Right, Chris. Now, <clears throat> on the subject of dogs, um, Foxy has says uh, with a question, how come my dog always seems to know what I'm thinking about?
1: Unfortunately... I think while some people do say some dogs are quite intuitive to their owners on the whole it tends to be a coincidence type thing where you think it's really uncanny Um, you know I was just thinking that and the dog seemed to know exactly what I was thinking and you tend to attach significance and notice the times when it does do it and you ignore the times when it doesn't seem to match up and so it's an artificial thing the exception to this is individuals who have dogs that are highly trained in order to help them when they're disabled and there are some dogs that can be trained to help people who for instance have epilepsy and there are some claims that some people say that their animals are very sensitive to perhaps signals that the individual is giving out Mm. which herald a forthcoming epileptic seizure for example and Mm. so the dog can help the person by making some kind of bark or warning and the person then knows that in a very short time they might be about to have a fit Mm. and as a result they then can get themselves away from furniture maybe down on the floor where they're not going to bash themselves so that if they do have a fit then they're not going to get injured Mm. And, and it's perfectly reasonable that could happen because we know that seizures don't just suddenly start there's probably some kind of kindling process where the brain waves become... Uh, or build up to become abnormal and then trigger the seizure and it's possible that that build up could be associated with some kind of manifestation in a change in behaviour or perhaps some subtle clue that the animals might be sensitive to and that's what gives the game away but I'm not aware of, of dogs or other animals being really sort of psychic or, or connected in some way to the behaviour of their owners I think it's more that we like to think of them as being very on our own wavelength but uh, but they're not really
0: Mm. Um, June in Braintree has called in and she says, Why sometimes are a person's eyes a deep colour, such as brown, and other paler colours, like hazel? Chris. Well, June,
1: it's all down to genetics, and we know of at least eight different genes that control the colours of eyes. Although people think of eye colour as very, very simple, in fact, it's incredibly complicated because the reason we have coloured eyes is, and, and the part of the eye we're talking about is the iris. This is the area around the pupil which can get bigger and smaller depending upon how much light is going into your eye. Uh, the, the natural colour of the iris, if you don't add any pigment, is blue. So blue eyes is where you have no colour in your eyes. That's the natural colour of the iris. Then as you have other pigments added, then you add to that blue colour and this changes the colour of the eye. And the different genetic pathways dictate what sorts of chemicals are added to the iris. And the chemicals that change the colour are things called melanins, the same stuff that gives you a suntan, actually. You have this thing called pheomelanin, and these, these are coloured products. They're, they can be anything from yellows through to browns. And when you add those to the eye, you can adjust by varying the amounts of those that are added, the actual ultimate colour of the eye. So it's all down to genes, and because you inherit your genes from your parents, you're effectively a, a, a mixing pot. And it's very hard to predict what eye colours will come out, apart from in the case of blue eyes. Because blue eyes are eyes with no pigment, to have blue eyes you have to have the genes which make you have blue eyes, you have to have all the copies of of those from both parents. So if one parent has blue eyes and another parent has blue eyes, it's almost certain they will have a child with blue eyes. Whereas if one parent has brown eyes and one parent has brown eyes, it's perfectly possible to have a child with blue eyes because brown eyes are dominant. So there can be genes for blue eyes in one parent but dominated by brown eyes. There can be genes for blue eyes in the other parent but dominated by brown. But when they make their eggs and sperm, the genes for blue eyes from each parent go into the egg or sperm. When they mix together, the the baby has two sets of the genes for blue eyes and they have blue eyes.
0: It's fascinating, isn't it? Nature's wonderful. Right, let's continue with the science because it's time to go to the phones right now. Um, We're pleased to welcome Tony onto the show. Hello, Tony.
2: Hello. Lovely to talk to you again, my dear.
0: And you too. What's your question for Dr Chris? Tony, we've missed you.
2: Um, DNA. Uh, This is a doctor. Um, Identical twins, um, have they got exactly the same DNA? And how many... uh, I mean, can you have triplets that are identical DNAs?
1: Yes, the answer is that if you have an identical twin, then your DNA is an exact replica for that twin. And this was proven very elegantly by the world's first organ transplant in the 1950s. There were two uh, twins called the Merrick twins, and one of them had kidney disease and the other one didn't. And doctors were able to take a kidney from one Merrick and give it to the other Merrick, And so both men were then healthy and there was no need for any drugs to suppress the immune system because one was a genetic match for the other and they did very well afterwards. Um, So yes, if you have twins and if you have identical triplets, you have identical DNA. And the reason you have identical DNA is because identical twins uh, occur or form when a fertilised egg, so in other words an ovum, which has been fertilised by a sperm and now has a complete copy of all the chromosomes 23 pairs of chromosomes that splits in two for some reason and it splits in two and because each of the cells in the egg has a complete copy of the dna you end up with two mini eggs which are genetically identical and because of this interesting aspect of nature that once you've got a fertilized egg the cells in it are all capable of forming a complete embryo in their own right you then end up with clones so, and twins look, are natural clones. W,
2: they call it, don't they? We used to call them siamese, but I think they call them conjoined twins. They'd be the same.
1: Yes, when you have conjoined twinning, what's happened there is that the division of the egg into two separate entities is incomplete. And for some reason, part of the developing embryo remains fused. So, that tends to occur slightly later in embryogenesis once the tissues have begun to form. But you split the embryo into two. And, they, and there's an area of union between the two, and so you end up with all the local signals playing out that, that map out an, an, a baby, but there's an area of union between the two, and they, they remain joined. Those are the Siamese twins, that's right. But some, some animals actually exploit this process naturally, and, and if you look at nine-banded armadillos,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, not that you would have access to look at one, I, but I, if you find a pregnant one, then what you'll find is that they naturally give birth to identical quads, so they make an egg, and they split the egg into four identical embryos, Good and Lord. they produce four identical offspring. And uh, there's actually, in the Zoology Museum at Cambridge University, there's a beautiful example of this, and you can see a pregnant one. Um, the, the uterus has been opened up, and you can see the four babies inside.
2: Good Lord. The um, oh, uh, thing, of course, that could happen, I mean, if you had triplets, one of them could murder somebody, leave their DNA a sample of, and they wouldn't know which one did it, would they?
1: Absolutely and I'm not aware of any murder cases where this is the case where one um, brother has accused or sister has accused the other of murdering someone and blaming them but there are definitely paternity cases because twins, identical twins, one of them has fathered a baby and blamed the other. And because neither could be proven by genetic evidence to be guilty, or other forms of, uh, of detection could be used to prove one, it was one rather than the other, they both had to take the blame under those circumstances,
2: really? or neither. Yeah. But it does Laughly, happen. Very quickly, um, we were tra- you were talking about cheese, you know, and, uh, in uh, microwaves and things like that. Is that why cheese smells, uh, well, cheese like camembert smells after a bit? Is it the bacteria in it?
1: Well, cheese is made by bacteria and fungi. If you look at a nice brie or a camembert, Uh uh, that mould around the outside is fungi. And the reason that blue cheeses, like Danish blue, taste so fantastic is is down to mould. It's fungi. And what people who are very experienced cheesemakers do is once they've got their cheese forming, and cheese is, of course, formed from the protein components of milk together with the fat, what they'll do is to add to the mixture... Um, a cocktail of fungi which they, they may have stored up from having uh, done this for many many years they know what the right combo of fungi are and the right combo of bacteria and you add this to your forming cheese and you also drill holes in the cheese to help the fungi grow into the cheese and when these bugs grow they secrete into the cheese after the, as they're breaking down the cheese uh, various byproducts of their metabolism and those byproducts are the tasty things that we love oh. so the fungi do us a favour And at the same time, the fungi also help to ward off other microbes because they produce chemicals that suppress the growth of bacteria we don't want in the cheese. So it's amazing, really, isn't it, to think that we owe the taste of cheese
0: to bacteria and fungi. (laughs) Mm.
2: Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you
0: very much, Tony. Bless
2: you, dear. Take
0: care. Hewitt has asked a question. He says, why is it I have dreams about being able to walk even though I have had an amputation on my right leg? And what is phantom limb syndrome? How does it work? Yeah,
1: I, I think that um, being a, dreaming that you can walk is, is quite common. When people go to sleep, they have an internal representation of what their body is like to them. And it can take a long while after a body modification for this to be translated into your dreams. Uh, for instance another example of this would be people who have lost people close to them they'll often dream and see themselves in the dream with the person that they've lost and it's probably because you think about the thing that you've lost a lot and therefore it's on your mind and therefore crops up in your dreams in terms of phantom limb syndrome this is something which we're slowly beginning to understand a bit more about and for people that aren't acquainted with the term when you have phantom limb syndrome what's going on is that someone usually says that part of their body has been amputated A common cause of this is either someone who has a traumatic injury, a road accident, it could also be due to a vascular problem. If you have a furred up blood vessel, for instance, people who have diabetes unfortunately can get this, Uh, you end up with areas of the body which don't have enough blood supply, and so you have to take away the tissue or you can get nasty infections. So when that part of the body is gone, although it's missing, uh, for some reason the brain cannot accept that it's no longer there and what patients would describe is this sensation that the missing body part still exists but not only does it still exist but it's excruciatingly uncomfortable and it's almost like the muscles are tied up in knots and you just can't make them relax and what scientists think could be going on is that the brain is used to when it's got a complete skeleton uh, feeling or, or receiving information coming back from all these different body parts and when it fails to receive information coming back from a part of the body that's now been amputated it thinks that it's unable to hear those signals and it just needs to turn the volume up a bit so the brain becomes sensitized to the signals coming in from the missing body part eventually the brain listens so hard that it starts to interpret just general random noise neurological noise as pain and so you end up with this excruciating pain that you can't Uh, get rid of because of course the brain is generating that noise itself that's one theory another theory is that the muscles find it very hard to relax because your your brain assumes that because the muscles are all contracted in this part of the body um, it it must be therefore very painful so it's pretending that, that this pain is there even though it's not and there's a number of researchers who've tried various things to try to relieve this including one approach which is to show people the reflection of their missing body part in a mirror Now what they do is to use a mirror and you take the part of the body that you have got you use the mirror to create a reflection of that to fool the brain into seeing a reflection which of course if you've got a hand and you look at a reflection of your left hand it looks like your right hand so you can use the mirror reflection to make someone's brain think that it can see the missing body part and if you show the person relaxing or unclasping or making gentle soothing movements with the missing body part This seems to make the brain forget that it hurts anymore. And in studies that were published about a year ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, they were able to cure people who had very bad phantom limb syndrome doing precisely this.
0: Wow, that's really quite something. Thank you, Dr. Chris. Um, Teddy Northamptonshire, listening to the programme about the colour of eyes. Is it possible you can have a true blonde-haired person with brown eyes? Chris. Yes you can, I went to school with one He had extremely
1: blonde hair He certainly didn't go near a bottle of bleach Mm. It was natural blonde And he had brown eyes And that's because the genes that control eye colour Are different combinations of genes To the genes that control hair colour but they are inherited together. Now, what I mean by that is that you have what's called a linkage group. So you have certain genes which are clustered together on your chromosomes, so they tend to go together when you inherit them into a child, but it doesn't mean that they have to all necessarily, if you've got the gene that gives you brown hair, it doesn't also have to affect the colour of your eyes, because eyes are run by a different set of genes hair colour although they tend to be inherited together and that's why you tend to see the the combinations cropping up together it's not a hard and fast rule though you can still end up with with um, brown eyes and blonde hair
2: Hmm.
0: Um, next let's go to uh, mike in colchester Um, he says that uh, we often see on cleaning products the words optical brightness Um, what is it and how does it work
1: Yes, um, this is the famous Danny Baker Daz doorstep challenge as well as other <laughs> washing powders. Uh, if you imagine uh, you're washing your clothes and you want them to look really super clean and really super bright and if I had said I had a chemical that would make them look really, really, really white you'd say brilliant because then it will look like my clothes are much cleaner than they are and everyone will think I've got brilliant white sheets, etc. That's exactly what the companies have done. They have found chemicals which when you add them to washing powders When they get into the clothes, they will stick on to the fabric of whites, for example, Mm -hmm. and they reflect all wavelengths of light. And that's what makes something white, because if you look at a sheet of paper, if it's white, the reason it's white is because it's reflecting all of the wavelengths of light that are hitting it back at your eye, and the combination of all of those wavelengths together we see as white light. So to make something look more white, what you have to do is to increase the amount of reflectance of white light that it does. And so these chemicals that give apparent optical brightness achieve that effect by binding to the material and reflecting lots of different light wavelengths back at you to make them look very white. It's the same thing, actually, that snow does. Snow, lots of tiny water crystals, reflects all of the different wavelengths of light back at your eye, giving the impression that it's a very brilliant white surface.
0: Right, next let's uh, go to um, Nor- Nigel in North Norfolk. Um, he says he suffers from a very painful and extensive psoriasis. It came on after he'd been taking um, Lipserol and Anatol. Could this been the cause of the psoriasis?
1: Well, psoriasis is a, an immune condition and it's caused by an accelerated... Uh, maturation of skin cells and it tends to be focal so you get it in certain patches of the body you tend to get it on uh, the extensor surfaces so knees, elbows also under the scalp And and it also does funny things to fingernails. If you look at the fingernails, if you have psoriasis, you see these. It's almost like someone's got a pin and drummed it up and down on on the ends of your fingers. And you get these little pop marks on the fingernails. Um, They're very, very small, so you may need a magnifying glass to see them. But it's certainly got a genetic linkage and it is an autoimmune condition. And drugs that damp down the immune system will improve psoriasis. I haven't heard necessarily of psoriasis being linked to an in, to to certain drugs, but that's not to say it can't happen because there are various manifestations of psoriasis where it will come on in response to things like surgery or injury. Uh, there's one form of psoriasis where. When you have a, I mean, it sometimes manifests in people who have, say, surgery, and they'll then get psoriasis around the scarred area or around the injury where the surgeon has made the cut in the skin. Um, and so there are forms of psoriasis that, that do respond to some kind of trauma. So it could be that, that he's got a predisposition to getting psoriasis uh, genetically, and that then the, the trigger is an injury or a chemical insult to the skin. So I think it's possible.
0: Hmm. let's go to one on the email now um, from Leanne, she says what causes boils?
1: well boils are skin infections and there are a number of reasons why you would have these Uh, some people have uh, a predisposition to getting them because their immune system doesn't work very well. But in the average person, what usually is the cause are skin bacteria and our good old friend Staphylococcus aureus is a common cause, but other bugs, including Streptococcus, can also do it. And usually what happens is that a hair follicle gets it blocked or a pore gets blocked, a sweat gland, and bacteria multiply in the gland and they then... Uh, trigger a local infection and they then bust out of the gland and spread into adjacent tissue and grow and proliferate there, producing more inflammation and more infection. And in the end, what you get is a big bag of bacteria which are replicating and growing. And they're also secreting various toxins and uh, nasty agents that break down the local tissue and enable the bacteria to spread. And you then end up with a large area uh, that's infected. And it accumulates a lot of pus because the immune system flocks to the area to try to ward off the bacteria. And lots of white blood cells, initially white blood cells called neutrophils, go in and they are a bit like suicide bombers. And they do their job by blowing themselves up to kill invaders. So what they do is go into an area of inflammation. They digest some of the bacteria that are there. But they also secrete all these very nasty chemicals that are very destructive and they kill the bacteria killing themselves in the process and that's what pus is it's dead cells and dead bacteria and dead tissue debris and you then end up with this bag of pus surrounded by bacteria which are still trying to grow and invade and this of course is intensely inflammatory and you get a big blob of this under the skin which is red hot swollen and tender those are the cardinal signs of inflammation it's red because there's a very high blood flow going to it because the blood vessels have opened up to let the immune system in it's hot because there's lots of red hot blood there there's lots of cells there which have got a high metabolic rate it's swollen because the blood vessels are bringing in all this blood they're also getting leaky and you've got lots of cells flocking into the area taking up space and you've got leakiness of the blood vessels which is allowing plasma proteins and things to leak into the area so you get uh, swelling and it's very, very tender at the same time because the inflammation winds up the nervous system and makes it respond to things much, uh, much more sensitive to stimuli than it would be normally. The idea being to warn you that there's a problem. And that's what a boil is. And the best way to treat them actually is to, as one person said to me, if there's pus about, let it out. Uh, doctors will want to put a needle into the area and try and draw off the pus because this gives the immune system a much more fighting chance that it can get rid of the bacteria. And if that doesn't work, sometimes you need something called I&D, incision and drainage. And instead of sticking a needle in, you stick a scalpel into the area and cut down into it, laying it open to get the pus out completely, wash the area and uh, allow it to drain. And then it heals up by, by the edges of the cut area, sort of re- re-approximating and then gluing themselves back together.
0: That's it for this week.